said we're up to the third of our, our series that we're doing on on rebuilding. That's what we've called it. Um, and it's uh, opening up various Old Testament texts or books that sail and who lived beyond it and and um, and through into the return back to the land afterwards. So we're we're right in that kind of part of the, the Old Testament. We've called the series Rebuilding. There we are. Um, <clears throat> because these are the hard-won reflections of a people who had had to do exactly that. They had to rebuild their faith in the in the rubble of of their city and the rubble of their the world that they used to know. Everything was turned upside down, and they had to figure out what does it mean to be the people of God in this upside down world. So two weeks ago, when we kicked off the series, I um, I made the I guess the suggestion that there seems to be some interesting parallels between the life and the writings and the wisdom of these uh, returnees um, and the church in New Zealand today, that the kind of church in the post-Christian, I don't know if that word means anything to anybody, the, 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 the crumbling of, of Christendom, um, of, the, of the privileged place of Christianity in the West, it's like this is where our faith is being forged. It's in this rubble, I guess, of, of 1,800 years of church history. We're in a strange time, but an exciting time. So, yeah, I suggested that it might be a good idea for, for each of us to have a go at reading through Ezra and Nehemiah in particular. And like I said, you know, uh, it, the Old Testament, if we're going to make the Old Testament our friend, we have to acknowledge that it's a quirky friend. It's an interesting friend. It's a friend who's a little strange. Um, and with Ezra and Nehemiah, it's really one of our quirkier, quirky friends from the Old Testament. Um, so we have to suspend our expectations of what we're supposed to get out of something like that. Um, if we're ever going to be able to find the gold that's in these books, we really need to um, go with them, go with them into their world and try to understand why have they given me this list. There must be something here. And... Um, because, yeah, believe it or not, those lists, those names, those articles, they are all packed with, with interesting hints and clues and backdrops for any attentive reader of the Old Testament. And um, a good commentary on this stuff can make a difference, a huge difference. Or uh, good Bible teachers as well, like, like Pete. So if you have any questions about the genealogies, talk to Pete. <laughs> he'll, uh, he'll give you the gold. But... <laughs> But seriously, it was uh, it was really good um, last week having Pete unpack uh, the book of Esther. Um, I just loved that metaphor of the, the these books being like a Netflix series, um, and you know this kind of meanwhile back in Babylon, uh, this perfect um, uh, looking back or looking aside to what's going on. So carrying on with that that metaphor, um, we are up to yeah we are uh, we've we've left Esther. And we're back. Uh, we're out of the cultural and the technological center of the world. We've we've left that area, and now we're going all the way back out to the to the um, barren frontier of Judea um, with our ragtag group of returnees. These the small band of people who are trying to rebuild their lives, trying to rebuild their homes and their religious institutions and the, their livelihoods um, in the rubble. Like I say, in the rubble of the city that they're grandparents lived in. Another really brilliant, helpful thing that Pete shared last week was this timeline. Um, so it shows approximately where we are. Uh, we are the, today we're still in Ezra 1 to 6, so we're still in that kind of 
early 20th century equivalent sort of period. Um, and we're going to wrap up that era today, um, <clears throat> which I didn't quite manage to finish last time. But the ne next week, we're going to be leaping ahead 60 years to tell the story of the second wave of returnees under the leadership of a man called Ezra. And that's kind of, like Pete said, the equivalent of jumping from the 1920s to the 1990s. Um, a little bit like jumping from the Charleston to <laughs> Hammer Time. <laughs> um, you know, there's similarities and there's differences. So um, I'm going to move on because that's going to be really distracting, eh? <clears throat> Last time I shared, um, I, I got us as far as the end of Chapter 3, which wasn't very far, but... Um, the end of chapter 3, if you remember, depicts this really strange scene, this, this strange anticlimactic moment where uh, after constructing and dedicating the altar, uh, the foundation of the new temple, there's this great gathering of all the returnees to mark the moment. And at this moment uh, in the story, we're sort of primed for anticipation. We're like, ah, um, something big's about to happen. There's going to be a dramatic visitation. God's going to come back. He's going to fill the temple like he did with, with David and Solomon's temple. Um, but instead, we get this really mixed response. We get this response where the older generation just can't stop weeping and wailing over what they'd lost. And then we also, at the same time, have this younger generation who are whooping and shouting and yahooing in their excitement about what they'd gained, um, over what they'd regained. So the text says, you know, but many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping, because the people made so much noise, and the sound was heard far away. So again, um, just casting our minds back a bit, you may remember that we talked about the way that the subtext of, of the book of Ezra and Nehemiah is really helpful for us if we're going to understand this kind of ambiguity in the text. So I talked last, last time that the, the very opening, the very opening um, lines of Ezra are designed to alert us to something which is going on. This idea that, um, that God... That you know, this great King Cyrus is is giving favor to Israel. Is giving favor, sorry, to the to the people of God, um, and that shows that it's God who's stirring up Cyrus. It's it's not just a random act, but it's God who stirs up the spirit of Cyrus, and it's God who stirs up the spirit of the people to return. So it's this straight away we think, okay, God is doing something here. There's some change that's happening. God is guiding history um, according to His redemptive purpose. And these opening lines also sort of twig us into something bigger even. That they, they link us back to the to the prophets. So it says, you know, in the first year of the king of per uh, king of Cyrus of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord from the mouth of Jeremiah. So referencing back to Jeremiah again helps the reader to go, ah, this is God's doing something and it's connected to something that is in our history and the prophetic kind of promises, especially Jeremiah and Isaiah and others. So Jeremiah and Isaiah both saw exile to Babylon. They, they saw it coming. Um, they, they prophesied about it. And that this destruction that was coming was, uh, was something which um, God had permitted to happen, basically. Um, 
it was unthinkable up until this point, but Isaiah and Jeremiah helped the people to see, no, God has allowed this to happen because of the great sort of um, stubbornness of the nation to represent his ways to the world. So, so this was sort of like a theological development that the prophets were, were giving Israel, um, that God uses the nations like this to, to achieve his purposes. Um, but just as much as the prophets spoke about God using the nations to, to discipline Israel, um, he also spoke about the way the nations, God uses the nations to redeem and to rescue his people. So as we read Ezra and Nehemiah, we, we, we realize that God is at work in a, in a new way. Um, and that, that connection back to, to Jeremiah and other prophets like Isaiah is also designed to activate like this whole prophetic package, this not just specific thing that Jeremiah said, but the whole of Jeremiah's teaching, the whole of Isaiah's teaching suddenly becomes activated in this very first, first verse, this expectation, this package of promises that they were hoping for, that God would return to rule and that the kingdom of God would be established on earth. So this is all big anticipation right at the start. Things like a total reformation of the heart, um, a general resurrection of the dead, um, all of the nations of the world flooding into Jerusalem to be taught by God, the end of war, the end of sin, the end of death. So it's big, big, big picture stuff. So for the exiles, the signal that all of that was about to happen, that this prophetic promise was about to be fulfilled would be when God instigated a second exodus. Um, so the return from exile in the book of, of Ezra and Nehemiah is put together in a certain way. It's deliberately written in a certain way to, um, to show us that what's going on here is this second exodus, this new exodus, so this decades-long process, this spanning a hundred years, the way Ezra and Nehemiah put it together is to show the links between this and the book of Exodus or the, the Exodus event. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, like I mentioned again last time, the, the way the prophets see the future is often they see the immediate and they speak to what the immediate event is. They see it like right there but they also see behind it everything else. And they see it almost like we use the metaphor of a mountain range. You know, when you're standing and looking at a mountain range, we see the whole mountain range in a kind of flattened way. We can't see the depth. We just see all of the different mountains together. So the prophets are speaking and they're seeing the future, but they're speaking to the present and to what's behind it. So for the people who lived in this time, they certainly understood that they were experiencing this second exodus. But they lived in this kind of tension between promise and fulfillment. They understood that it was this not yetness to what they were experiencing, this partiality or partialness, I don't know if that's a word, um, to, to the promise being fulfilled. So yes, we're back in the land, um, and yet, mm, is this that like this question that they answer, is this it? Like, are we, is this what it was all about? Or is there more to come? So <clears throat> they live with this sense of ambiguity and not being quite sure what to do about this tension between what they had expected and what they were living with. It was sort of a, an, an agonizing tension. So, um, yeah, and I think that's a good word for it, really, agonizing. It's the sense of um, still desiring more, 
but living with the agony of it not being yet, uh, seeing it but not feeling it. Um, so on the one hand, what they do in response to that, it's really brilliant. They um, work on restoring, they restore the rhythms of worship by rebuilding the altar. So they um, rebuild their rhythms of worship, their practices of worship as a people by reenacting the past. They, um, <clears throat> they do it by practicing these religious festivals like the temp- uh, Festival of Booths and the Passover. And they also do it by um, even the way it describes the temple rebuilders go to get the exact same material. They go to Lebanon to get the specific trees. They go to the specific masons who built Solomon's temple. They, they're really wanting to show that everything they're doing is, con- is part of this continuous story that God's been doing. They're almost leaning in and enacting what they are seeing and hoping for, um, being very deliberate in that way. And so all these rhythms of worship, all of these patterns that they're laying down are there to help them re-establish their identity as members of God's people, uh, this covenant family. So all of this work that they're doing is, is part of that. And yet um, we will see, and today we'll see, we saw last time and the time before, that um, despite the best attempts of these godly, wise, um, careful leaders who are doing their absolute best, I think, to live faithfully, to to live creatively in the rubble. Um, they, this messianic age just refuses to dawn. They just, no matter what they do, it just isn't coming. Um, they're doing all the right stuff, but it's not happening. Agony. <laughs> um, and And worse yet, they start to, you know, despite doing all the right things, they start experiencing all kinds of these annoying and and frustrating setbacks, these petty things which keep emerging, which keep interrupting their plans. So when we we zoom out um, a little, we see that the the story of these setbacks is actually actually the key message, in a a way, of the first six chapters of of Ezra. Um, It's, like I say, it's an elegant literary structure. And um, this is the end of our Bible lesson soon, um, but just thought it was helpful to see just how carefully this piece of literature has been put together. It's directly balanced like that. It begins with the Hebrew Edict of Cyrus. It ends with the Aramaic Edict of of Cyrus. It's all structured in such a way that it leads the reader through the Hebrew text to this center where it's opposition. They experience opposition. They, They go through this amazing, remarkable release from Babylon, they, it lists the returnees, this long list of names, and then there's the foundation being built, the mixed responses, the some are happy, some are crying, and then the temple rebuilding is threatened, opposition, and the temple rebuilding stops, and suddenly the, the actual original language switches from Hebrew to Aramaic, which is the language of the royal, um, the royal courts rather than the language of the people. And it rebalances the whole text all the way through to the end of chapter 6. So it's really cool. These these writers are just absolute geniuses. The way they, the way they put their stuff together, and all of it is deliberate, and all of it is careful. But right there at the centre, you know, the apex of this literary structure is opposition. Opposition is right there at the centre. The theological message, if you like, of Ezra one to six is a fly in the ointment. There's something not quite right. There's something wrong. 
So that's the key point, I think, that the, the, in this part of the book, at least, the author is making, that the historical results of this new exodus, this great spiritual revival that everyone's experiencing, the results are partial at best um, and somewhat disappointing, really. And so people are like, what do we do with this, this disappointment? And I think the, the lesson here um, <coughs> is designed deliberately to help us read these whole books and help us to interpret what's going on, these strange moments in the narrative, like the mix of celebrating and weeping. The key question that's running through Ezra, running through Nehemiah, running through all of this period is, is, um, is why have God's grand plans gone pear-shaped? What's gone wrong? Um, we Everything was going so well, and then it's all gone so wrong. What has happened? Um, so if we want to stay with that question, it's an uncomfortable question perhaps, but it's a good question of holding expectation and saying, why is it not working the way I thought it would work? Why is it not feeling the way I was told it would feel? Let's look a little closer in the narrative now. Um, so when we get to Ezra chapter 4, there's this really abrupt opening line. Uh, you might not be able to see it, actually, because it's just under that banner, but it says, When the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to Yahweh, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel, he's the leader of, of um, the people at the time, and the heads of families and said to them, let us build with you, for we worship God, or we worship your God as you do. And we've been sacrificing to him ever since the days of King Esarhaddon of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Yeshua, and the rest of the heads of families in Israel said to them, You shall have no part with us in building a house for our God. But we alone will build for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus of Persia has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. And they bribed officials to frustrate their plan throughout the reign of Cyrus of Persia and until the reign of King Darius of Persia. So this is the first time we meet these adversaries or these enemies of Judah. There's Judah and Benjamin. But we're just introduced to them suddenly as when the enemies, and it's like, hold on, wait, which enemies? What What enemies? When the adversaries, who are these people? Who are these enemies of Judah and Benjamin? Um, where do they come from? And what made them enemies? What, what constitutes them as enemies? And so to answer that, we need to go way back into the Old Testament. We need to go way back <laughs> into Second Kings chapter 17. And that details the fall of the northern kingdom. So the, the Israel has split into two. There's been a civil war. The kingdom in the north is ten tribes. And um, so this is all happening maybe 180 years before the events, if you're following me. Uh, on Pete's timeline, we're talking like the 1730s, um, if that helps. Um, we're, we're talking way back in the past. There's this thing which happens. The, the northern kingdoms get swept away by the king of Assyria. The, um, you know, they've, they've passed the point of reform, um, they've passed the point of no return in terms of their, their moral and political and spiritual decline, and so God allows um, Assyria to just sweep through and, and take all these tribes away. And, um, 
yeah, we get this really interesting note about what happened after this event, after the Assyrians have swept through and taken off the ten northern tribes. And just to say, like, the... <laughs> this is a bit nerdy, eh? But the, the Assyrians uh, were, like, a really, really nasty um, empire as far as empires go. Um, they were quite famous for inventing all kinds of horrible things. Um, but one of their tactics was that they had this policy where they would uplift a whole population and then move them to another part of their empire and uplift another population and move them to that part of the empire. And they would just shuffle people around just to kind of dislocate them and, and confuse them and interrupt any chance of them to organize themselves. So this was part of their policy of dividing and conquering. So this is what happens. The Israelites are all swept away and they're pff, scattered into the wind. We don't know where they've gone. But suddenly all these new people are brought back into the land. So Second Kings 17 describes it like this. Um, oh, there's lions too. Um, <coughs> the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharaim, and settled them in the towns of Samaria. So that's like in the middle of Israel to replace the Israelites. And they, the, the imported people, these newcomers, took over Samaria and lived in its towns when they first lived there. They did not worship Yahweh, so he sent lions among them and killed some of the people. Wow. It was reported that the king of Assyria, to the king of Assyria, the people you deported and resettled in the towns of Samaria do not know what the God of that country requires. He sent lions among them, which are now killing them off because the people don't know what he requires. A crazy story, really. Um, and so the king of Assyria orders this uh, Israelite priest to come back and to teach these new people about how to worship Yahweh properly to stop the lions from attacking people. Um, and it says, uh, yeah, so they, they worshipped Yahweh, but they also served their own gods. Um, and they do this. So they, this, is their, this is the origin, I guess, of the people of the land. This is the people that, is, that the returnees come and bump up against 180 years later. So putting aside, <laughs> if, we, if I may, the, the part about getting attacked by lions, um, again, Pete can explain that for us. <laughs> um, the, the explanation, I think, of who's living in the land is going to be helpful for us going forward through this series. It's going to be helpful for us to know who these people are, who these enemies of Israel are. Um, and perhaps um, it may even be helpful for us when we consider what a maybe a more conciliatory approach could have brought about. So tracing the origins of feuds is always a fascinating thing. Like what starts a feud? Um, sometimes it's, it's so small that you, you can't even find what led to this feud, but it escalates and escalates and escalates. So this is a picture of the um, Hatfield clan of West Virginia who had a feud with the McCoy family of Kentucky. And it's a famous feud in, in American folklore. Um, you can see, like, that little child's got a gun and the old man's got a gun and the teenagers have got guns. It's this intergenerational, like, beef against this other family. And there's no real remembering of what it all started with. It's just this ongoing cycle that continues. So whatever it was, these guys <laughs> spent you know, the rest of their life beefing with this other family, and it led to a huge amount of violence in, in this part of America. 
So um, I don't know if we could exactly say that's what's going on in Ezra 4, um, when the adversaries appear on the scene. Maybe it's the makings of a family feud, maybe it's a family feud which goes back. But it's possible that maybe this is the beginning of the family feud. This is the origin of the, 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 they become the enemies of Judah at this moment, partially maybe as a result of the way Israel treated them, um, the way Zerubbabel's had the strict policy of cultural isolation. We don't want you participating in our rebuilding. Thank you very much. Go away. <laughs> That's a good way to make an enemy. Maybe, I don't know. Um, so we're left to wonder, I guess. And this is the great thing about these Old Testament texts. They're so sophisticated, they get us to wonder. They get us to ponder. What might have happened if instead of rejecting this offer of help, Zerubbabel had said, um, you know, cautiously perhaps said, okay, we can figure out how to do this. Now, um, I'm really sympathetic to, to Zerubbabel's dilemma. You know, I think... We see this in immigrant communities, this need to maintain a sense of identity in, in, a, in a hostile environment. Um, you know, these people have just come out of Babylon, they've only really just shaken the habit of, of idol worship, and so they find themselves in the land and suddenly you have this, this group of outsiders who are coming and saying, yeah, we'll help you. And they're the syncretistic mix of a bit of Yahweh and a bit of this. So Zerubbabel was like, no, 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 thank you, we don't want you. Um, we need to maintain our boundaries here about who we are. <clears throat> so, yeah, like I say, sometimes that's important. Sometimes that's necessary for maintaining faithfulness in these environments where faith is fragile, where, where, where there's a kind of threat of corrosion. But it can also backfire, as we know. You know, Sometimes that sense of exclusivity can backfire. It can generate unnecessary tension, extra tension with the culture around it. So there might be other reasons why the people of the land became you know, known as the enemies of Judah. Um, but what we do know for sure is that throughout the rest of the book, we're going to see this feud intensify. It's going to get worse and worse and worse. Um, and the chapters that follow on Ezra and Nehemiah, things get worse, the spiral gets worse. Um, so the fly and the ointment thing turns into much more much more significant and it, it really threatens the the narrative that they are telling about themselves as we're the we're in the new exodus we're the we're the great savior of of, of the world you know um suddenly it's like uh, yeah but something's not quite working here so um yeah so maybe Ezra and Nehemiah doesn't necessarily give us the best teachings on how to be a good neighbor um but we should also remember that you know um there are also other perspectives, even in the Bible, on this period of time. So um, Ezra Nehemiah offers this particular interpretation of what was going on. It explains these enemies, they came, this is what happened. But we also have the writings of prophets who lived at the same time and who were contemporaries of Zerubbabel. So Haggai and Zechariah, those are two prophets who lived amongst the returnees. And they both, um, and they were with Zerubbabel, and they both bring this really interesting counter perspective to the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. So, where Zerubbabel has this kind of hard, like, we don't want you participating in the life of our community, thank you. Um, Je uh, Zechariah 
sees to see things quite differently. He seems to see Jerusalem as a place where all of the nations of the world are going to find their home. This is what Zechariah says. Um, and you should just read the whole of chapter 2 for, for context. It's all in the context of rebuilding of Jerusalem. But he says, Shout and be glad, daughter Zion, for I am coming, and I will live among you, declares the Lord. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. I will live among you, and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Um, or skipping ahead to chapter 8 in Zechariah, it says, This is what the Lord Almighty says. Many peoples and the inhabitants of many cities will yet come, and the inhabitants of one city will go to another and say, Let us go at, at, to entreat the Lord and seek the Lord Almighty. I myself am going. And many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem and seek the Lord Almighty to entreat him. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, ten people from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you, because we have heard that God is with you. So this is what Zerubbabel, a contemporary of, uh, sorry, Zechariah, a contemporary of Zerubbabel, is seeing. Uh, it's what he's writing. So whatever the case, maybe it's a case of this prophetic thing where we see the immediate and we see the distant all at once. But this promise of a multi-ethnic people of God um, is certainly not fulfilled under Zerubbabel, Ezra, or Nehemiah's watch. And in fact, like I say, the story shows a progressive sharpening of the divisions between Israel and the nations of the world, the people of the land. But in the end, as the story goes, um, Haggai and Zechariah are instrumental in encouraging the people to get going and to get building. So despite the opposition that they're facing, it says that Haggai and Zechariah were among the people encouraging them to get building. And, um, and as a result, they complete the temple, despite you know, all of the, the, the letters that were being written against them. They just keep going, they put their heads down and they build. So the, the narrative of, of Ezra 1 to 6, if you treat that as like a chunk, it climaxes with the celebration of Passover, um, which is like that, again, like this ultimate link back to the Exodus, this moment when God delivered his people from slavery. And so the, the returnees celebrate their identity as the chosen people in continuity with God's redemptive work. And that's the end of Ezra 1 to 6. That's the end of that little chunk of history. But it's interesting, just a little note in the very end of this chunk of 1 to 6, on this topic of ethnic inclusion, there's a note in chapter 6, verse 21, that describes who celebrated the Passover. And this is what it says. Do I have it? Yeah, just down the bottom. You don't need to read all that, but the, the in um, italics. The Passover feast. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, and also by all who had joined them and separated themselves from the pollutions of the nations of the land to seek the Lord, the God of Israel. So there's like a, there's a, there is an inclusion of different people. This sort of implies that there is a porousness to the boundaries of who constituted the people of God, even in Zerubbabel's day. Okay, <laughs> so I hear you asking, so what? Um, this is maybe interesting, <laughs> you know, some Bible study, but, but so what? You know, uh, how, does help, how does knowing this stuff help me? How does it 
How does it um, speak to me in the context of my complicated life? You've come here to encounter God. You've come here to seek wisdom. And you've come here with all of the stuff that you bring. You know, your, your act of worship is turning up. And, and so we need to ask this, so what question? And I think, I think I see a couple of key lessons. So like, the first one I see is that, we're, like I said, we are a lot like these returnees in some ways. Um, we live in this agonizing tension, if we're honest with ourselves, between promise and fulfillment. We daily, as Christians, live the, in this agonizing sense of we know that God is doing something, we know that there's more, and yet we, we also know that we're so not experiencing the fullness of what God is doing. You know, it's agony in lots of ways to be a Christian. We're spread across time. Part of us is living in the future. Part of us is stuck in the present. Um, we experience these glimpses of resurrection life in ourselves and in the world around us. We see moments where God is sovereign. We see moments where God sovereignly acts in history. Um, where his kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. We see these little moments. And we know that we ourselves, our own stories, our own lives, are caught up in what God's doing. We are part of something that God's doing. We belong to a bigger story. And so we, we're experiencing the same sort of tension that the returnees experience. They were part of the story. They saw amazing things. They were, they were drawn into God's purposes. And yet, like the returnees, we, I think also, yeah, like we live, we see how the fulfillment of God's purposes in our own life, in the life of our city, in the life of our families, we see how so often it's complicated by the various things, by our own limitations, by the limitations of, of human selfishness, by, by who knows what. We see, we live with the both and in this sense. And it's interesting that you know sometimes the response is to um, is to try to dig in uh, and 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 pretend like like nothing's wrong, you know, and and harden ourselves to to um, this agonizing tension. It's interesting. I was thinking about the way that you know so often we have this tendency to interpret God's ways and make them stricter than they already are. So we see it in the Garden of Eden in the story when, when Adam and Eve are in the garden and God says, you know, this is the tree of the knowledge and good and evil. If you eat of it, you'll, you'll certainly die. And then later when, when Eve is talking with the snake, she says, yeah, God said if we touch it, we'll die. Uh, it's like, well, actually God never said that. It's like Eve adds this extra layer to what God had already said. She adds this extra layer of... Um, of requirements um, and it's really I think it's the same spirit which Jesus confronted when he bumped into the Pharisees you know whenever he critiqued them he was critiquing them for adding stuff adding things to the you know attending to the minutiae of the law the tiny little details but neglecting the weightier commandments like justice mercy and faith so sometimes we can become a little maybe in an effort to get around the Agony, we get good at just managing the little things and we think that that's the important stuff. <laughs> I think Zechariah and the prophets had to remind Zerubbabel that you know, the city of Jerusalem was going to be a place for all, all people. 
that all people would be able to uh, enter into God's presence. And similarly, when you read Haggai, which is only two chapters, so it's not a long read, but Haggai again critiques the narrative in Ezra and Nehemiah. He says, you know, it's not, it's not these people that are stopping your plans from building. It's that you're not you're prioritizing building your own houses before building the temple. So Haggai has a totally different reading on history. He came up with a different diagnosis. So all that's just to say that <laughs> I think in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah and this, all of this literature, we see this pattern that we humans, are, are, I think we're a little prone to living in maybe like grandiose narratives, um, um, you know, while ignoring kind of the practical issues at hand. Um, so we could either become so uh, hardened and boundaried around things, or on the other hand, we become totally culturally relevant so that we have nothing new to offer, nothing new to speak. There's only one person who I've seen who's been able to kind of manage this well, and that's Jesus. <laughs> so if anyone can model this tension, it's Jesus. I mean, isn't it fascinating that that so many of Jesus' key ministry moments were with Samaritans, were with these people, these rejects of the land. Um, this is where Jesus spent his time. His key ministry breakthroughs um, were with the enemies of Judah and Benjamin. The first evangelist, according to the Gospel of John, was a Samaritan woman. She was the first evangelist to go out and spread the good news. So Jesus is bringing the Samaritans into the center of his work. And, and saying, you also belong. Um, teaching that the kingdom of God is most fully expressed when, uh, you know, in the context of a wedding table where everybody has a seat at the table. And at the same time, Jesus' righteousness surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees. You know, he's not slack in his righteousness. He maintains a greater righteousness than all of the kind of puritanical things which religious communities can get obsessed with. His righteousness far exceeds it. And yet, his welcome far exceeds ours as well. So, yeah, I guess I think the lesson for us in all of this is always to come back to Jesus. We read Ezra and Nehemiah through Jesus. Jesus helps us to interpret all of this stuff. Um, but for us, I guess, it's this challenge, I suppose, um, of standing in someone like Zero Bubble Shoes and saying, what, what kind of wisdom would I, would I need to do this? How could I cling courageously to God's commandments? How could I stay true to who God has called me to be and who God is calling us to be? How can we stay so faithful to that vision in a culture that's going to be corrosive to our faith, how can we cling to that whilst at the same time not building walls around us, not building walls within us to, to push the world away, to keep the world out? Um, because the church, us, we're not, uh, we're not an escape hatch from the world. You know? We're not a, a way out of the world. The church is also um, not the instrument to fix the world. Sometimes we can think it's one or the other. It's either a way to escape the world or it's a way to fix the world. The church is actually neither of those things. The church is a counterculture. It's a living counterculture. And it's a, 
picture of a counterculture that's in the world but not of the world. A herald of the kingdom of God. So finding faith in the rubble for us maybe involves seeking the kingdom of God in surprising places and surprising people. And it certainly will involve us finding ourselves deeply rooted in the story of God. So that is all I have to say about Ezra 1 to 6. <laughs> I think we got there. Why don't we stand? And, you know, I feel like this morning um, God has got some things for us. I was thinking in the worship, why don't we stand and, and just wait on God for a moment? This is maybe nothing to do with, with what I've been preaching on, <clears throat> but that's often the way it is. <laughs> I just had this picture while we were worshipping of a koru, and a, a koru unfurling, and it was this koru that was so brimming with life. And I think, um, yeah, I think maybe there's an invitation this morning to um, encounter God's life again. <laughs>